everybody, welcome back. It's me, Matt Tinney, and... It's me, Ben Melendrez. How awesome is that? Ben, I wanted to pick your brain Uh about training of outside agencies. Okay. So, like, here locally, you Uh know, we're CIT coordinators. We run the CIT program, but we're also part of behavioral training. Yep. But for community outreach, we provide training to, like, the local university. We provide to library staff, anyone that's kind of looking. Yeah. Do, Do you think that's beneficial? Oh, absolutely. Especially when it comes to, like, one of the components of a good CIT program is collaboration, right? Okay. So, and that, I, I take that to mean collaboration with more than just law enforcement. So, if we can get out there and we can teach, you know, de-escalation to the library system, we can teach public transportation. Right. We're just collaborating. We're networking. We're kind of showing a sense of community when it comes to the police department. But, so, I mean, what kind of training does a police department offer then? What do we offer? Yeah. Um, so one of the most. Well, what do you think any department? Let's say. So I mean, we're we're a mid-sized. I think we're the thirty-second largest department. So we're we're a pretty big department. Right. But let's say just anyone in law enforcement. What's something you think they could offer? So I think anybody in law enforcement has a pretty good understanding of how to de-escalate people in conflict. Um, That's a good point. Because we come across that so often. You know, nobody calls the police and say, "Hey, we're doing really great." We just want to visit with the police officer and have a water balloon fight. Everything's fine here. <laughs> People call because they're in crisis. Their coping mechanisms aren't working, and we have we have a lot of experience going and you know helping de-escalate that situation. And that's really a skill that's not intuitive to human beings. It's true, and it's not really taught yeah. many other places. Right. I think also one thing that uh, anyone in law enforcement can do that I think we undervalue is we are experts in safety. Yep, definitely. You can easily go to any place that's non-law enforcement and teach them basic safety stuff. How to recognize, you know, signs that someone might be dangerous or signs that a situation's dangerous. Sure. Or even do a, an evaluation of a facility to say, you know what, these doors need to be locked. You should put, you know, lights outside here or different things in place. These are all things easily you can offer. And like Ben was saying about collaboration, sometimes that's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. And I guarantee if you guys start doing courses or classes or presentations on you know safety or de-escalation stuff like that you're going to get a lot of requests yeah it's going to start off like a trickle and then it's going to be a waterfall once people start you know valuing what you guys are teaching more and more people are going to ask for it and i mean you know some people have an idea of community policing is addressing crime problems um but i believe that this is a type of community policing absolutely i mean it's it's you're getting buy-in from the community right and people are like, well, how does that happen? You know, it's not like we're actually doing law enforcement stuff. But you get buy-in because you're offering a service and you're humanizing yourself. Right. You're, so, a, you're a face to law enforcement that they get to see and interact right. with. And people are like, oh, I didn't realize you guys were like that or you guys are so approachable. It's like, yeah, all yeah. officers are. I didn't realize you guys were human beings yeah. as well. <laughs> I didn't realize, wow, you guys joke and stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're human beings. <laughs> and then, you know, one of the other things I think is important that we don't think about is it's an opportunity for you know you to discuss with the public when they should and shouldn't call law enforcement sure yeah um and then it also goes back to the humanization like let's say it is you're targeting mental health providers it lets them know you're not there with malicious intent right which right now is kind of a theme it's a concern right people are thinking law enforcement if you call them about a patient or someone living with mental illness they're going to get shot they're going to kill them yeah they're going to use force. And that's just not the truth. Right. 
And so I think, you know, having that face to face where people can see us and say, okay, that that's not the intent. It really helps the people in the community. Yeah, absolutely. Be- yeah. Cause then when we reach out to that organization, say, Hey, we're worried. This is one of your client. They're more likely to, to hear us out right. and offer us suggestions on how to better help people. Yep. And we can even, you know, include like tips on what to tell the, the operators when you're calling about a client, right? Like, Hey, let the operator know that this person is doing this and he knows the police are coming and he's calm right now, or he has a knife in his hand or all the information that we want. Yeah. Uh, we can give them an idea of what to, what to tell the dispatcher. Now, if someone's listening thinking, okay, I want to do some training to outside of my type of organization sure. or my field of work. What, what have you noticed was the hardest thing coming in and all of a sudden you're now teaching people that aren't law enforcement? Uh, so, I mean, there's some different challenges. First of all, the way we talk as police officers, That's a lot true. of time does not <laughs> translate into human conversation. That is very true. Because we talk in numbers. Like, uh, did you get that person's 21 for that 20? I'll see you. I'll make 25 with them later. Right. And if you teach that to civilians, they're just going to just stare at you. So, you know what, what I found was the hardest and I'm much better or I'm better than now. But when I started, I referred to everyone as a suspect. Well, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's hey, just, when you're uh, out with a suspect, you should talk like this. But you start talking in front of organizations, they're like, they're not suspects. They didn't violate the law. And, it, you know, it's not like we're saying that, but if you were an outside person and you walk in, like, oh, cops keep referring to someone living with mental illness as a suspect, it's against the law. I can see where that stigmatizes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, the vernacular is important. Yeah, and that was a hard one to yeah. What, what else did you see was difficult? So then, like you said, it's kind of just taking what we find intuitive or we have learned as police and breaking it down so somebody that's not living in our law enforcement world can understand. Right. So it's stuff like we know what a transitional space is and it's not safe for people. But uh, finding a clear way to communicate that to people, uh, it took some challenges for me. And it's like I had to find a piece of myself back before I was a cop and I talked like a regular person and I thought like a regular person. How was I in normal world? So I had to access that part of my brain again and, you know, just talk like a normal person and not like a weird cop. Right. Have you, has anyone in the community ever told you like brought up any characteristics like this is weird or this wasn't referable or could you change it next time to this or do things different? What do you mean? Maybe I'm not articulating myself right. I'm thinking like, one thing I've had to take into account is how we dress to present to the community. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I know that was one thing that came up where people have told us before for in-house stuff. Like, And this is – I was so surprised with this. Like, do you guys have to wear your guns here? Yeah. Do you have to come in uniform? Do you have to do this? And that was always shocking to me because I just – I'm like, well, yeah, I'm at work. I'm at duty. We carry this. But I didn't realize – you know, people, how intimidated they are by that stuff. Sure, yeah. So definitely. I know sometimes, depending on the agencies, we change how we dress to teach. Yeah, definitely. I mean, oftentimes we, well, I don't know if we ever wear a uniform. Sometimes for the police department, we wear modified uniforms to train, but we normally go business, so ties. Right. But sometimes we dress where we cover our weapons. Right. You know, depending on the organization. And I and think it comes down to, there's going to be certain accommodations that you should be willing to make if you're going to teach a civilian population. Right. If it's unreasonable, you don't have to do that. But if people are making reasonable accommodations, like you're scaring people, can you cover your guns or can you not talk in numbers? I mean, these are all reasonable things that we can do. Right. And it helps us connect us to the community. Yeah. And so if you guys are interested in that, don't, 
be shied away if people are telling you things like that. Like, yeah. we're intimidated by your gun. Right. Remember, this might be the first time you've interacted as law enforcement with that agency, and there might be history there that's negative. Yeah, sure. So that's your time to help change and mold how they view law enforcement. And that's one of the best parts about about teaching non-law enforcement is changing the perception of what law enforcement is. At least for right. me, that's very gratifying. What, what else has stood out in this kind of stuff to you? Just how much of a need there is for the training that we it's offer. It's surprising, right? Yeah. I mean, we have so many organizations uh, constantly asking us, hey, can we go Can we go and teach de-escalation? And then, like, so the library system, I would have never thought. That but, they would need it. But they do come across a lot of people that are living with mental illness or a lot of people right. that are in crisis. And I just wouldn't have thought. But then they asked us for training, and I'm like, this makes perfect sense. I think the that – the biggest shock to me, and we do, we are so incorporated now with training, is uh, doctors and medical students. Right. I had always thought they are the experts. Right. This. You know, like, what are we going to give to a medical provider that they have not received through all their training? That was the biggest shock yeah. in acting. But I think it goes back to, like, I've never viewed them as humans. Right, yeah. You know, this is a doctor. This is, like, this almighty knowing person and everything. Kind of how people don't view us as humans. Right. Yeah. And that has been one of the biggest shocks. Yeah. And so I had to prepare myself to be like, well, that's why won't they know this? You know, <laughs> that's so weird. Right. And then working in that. But one thing, too, you know, I don't think people realize is how much information we get and we learn vicariously through this. Yeah. Too, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's not like we're just going and giving information and leaving. And we don't personally get a benefit. I've learned so much from working with oh, with yeah. these organizations Absolutely. about even if it's just mental health diagnosis, resources, things like that, just vicariously from the conversations. Yeah, I mean, the other day on social media, I put a quote that I just thought in my head, and it was like, "I'm really glad that my profession has afforded me the opportunity to teach." Because I've never learned so much in my life. Right, it's absolutely true. Like I've learned more teaching than I did in school and the academy, all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of collaboration that people don't realize. Yeah, you know, one, I will just say this: it's not easy to do collaboration. It's, it's true. It, You're doing a lot of meetings, and it's not with people you would normally socialize with. And so, I can see where people get turned off. Yeah. You may not normally go talk to somebody in this profession in your personal life. You know, but. I guarantee if you keep it up, you will gain information that will help you in your job. Right. That's what it seems like. And for me, like, uh, this is my opinion. I think, like, the us first them mentality that police have traditionally had, it it doesn't work very well. Um, It creates just a a lot of tension in the community. So more of a collaborative approach, I think, works better. And, you know, just the us versus them kind of stuff, you know, kind of goes to, like, war on crime, war on drugs. But be aware that this is ingrained in, in you if you're law enforcement. So when you're writing uh, your curriculum for these outreach stuff, be careful of that mentality because yeah. it comes across in your words. Like how I've always used to use a suspect. Right, yeah. And I didn't mean that negatively. That's just how I refer to someone I came in contact with. Yeah. And, it, you know, but they're not suspects, you know, right. individual. And, and be cognizant of that if you can. Be like, okay, how do I portray this as it's not, you know, police war on this subject right. or police intervention in the subject, but how are police helping the community yeah, exactly. around something? And it's important, but it's hard to adapt it to is. those changes. It takes a while. It takes a while. So if you were to give advice to an agency thinking about, okay, that's cool. Yeah, I like this idea. How would they get started? 
What would be your advice on that? So uh, find find a place that you think would benefit from the information that you have and just go meet them. Set up a meeting. Call them. They may turn you down, whatever, but that may be the foothold that you need. And that first meeting, you know, develops into this this cool program, this cool um, collaboration you have. Right. It could be the hospital or the library system or the local Walmarts having issues with people in there that are in crisis and they, their employees don't know how to handle it. Just anything. If you see a need, don't be afraid to make contact with that. Right. And like you said, it does require some patience. It does. <laughs> there are going to be some people that maybe have had a, a previous negative uh, interaction with police. Right. And th- they don't hesitate to call you out on that. It's very true. And so you have to be prepared to answer those type of questions uh, in a professional manner. Um, but if you keep at it, I guarantee that the word will spread and people will start requesting that you guys come give them training. Right. And, you know, one way to put it and think about it for yourself, we don't like being told what we should do. Right. So we don't like anyone coming in and say, you guys as cops need to do this. Don't do the same when you're doing outreach. Don't be like, hey, you guys need this stuff. Right. You know, I would call up a place and be like, hey, I listened to this podcast. I read some research on this. And, and we can offer this if it's something that you're interested in. If you're looking at just doing some curriculum-based stuff. Right. No, and if you great. don't already do like a community policing um, academy or a citizens police academy. If you don't do something like that, these are great ways. But yes, yeah, start the collaboration and start that and, and see how it goes. You know, we have some courses already designed, and if you guys are interested in just using those for de escalation or safety stuff, you guys can always send me an email. Um, just send it to ask at gocat.org, and I can send you guys that stuff. Um, reach out to if you are a provider listening to this and you want some safety training that's been brought up, just reach out to your local law enforcement and ask them. Hey, I heard this, and I'm wondering if you guys offer this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different safety training out there now. Unfortunately, in the world we live in, there's a lot of stuff around active shooters. Sure. So if you run an organization and you want to have some in-service, that's a great one to reach out to ask. But try your eyes as best and reach out for this stuff. The collaboration goes so far in helping everyone in the community. It really does. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye. See you guys. start yeah good afternoon everybody um i don't know how many of you were here gosh it's been what was it april i think april was the i'm doing a series is it it's a three-part series called sex drugs and patrol um and so the first one that i did was i believe april 21st and this is the second um part pretty much all geared toward this whole issue of stress management which I'm sure all of you can relate to that for sure. Um, So today we're going to be talking about the key to effective coping mechanisms. And that's just um, what I had announced. I I have a private practice called Odyssey Counseling that I've had for 27 years. And and I have a lot of specialized programs for first responders and their families, which is Allies for First Responders. I created a nonprofit organization called Behind the Badge New Mexico and why that might be helpful for you all to know is we're raising money to help pay for co-pays for counseling and ancillary services uh, like meditation classes. We just had a fundraiser the other night and I'm pretty excited because we raised $8,000 in two hours. So I think that's pretty phenomenal. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about, and Nils is going is gonna to kind of pitch in yes. during this training, um, his valuable input, 
um, is to talk about occupational stress. I think that uh, when I talk to people who come to my office, a lot of times I think we don't stop and think about our occupations being stressful. I mean, maybe fleetingly, but you know, one of the values of a training like this is to really stop and take the time to think about how stressed you are or not, how you cope with stress and, and things like that. And the, you know, stress management is, it's kind of a beast of its own because not, not everybody gets stressed by the same thing. So even as I go through the list, not, you know, you'll be able to relate to some and, and some you're just not going to relate to. But um, so in your occupation, threats to your safety or health, you know, that is, um, I think a lot of times uh, the officers that I talk to kind of bypass that. Even a lot of times the, the spouses that I talk to and significant others, they try not to think about the threat to your safety. They try really hard not to do that, but that is um, a constant for them and, and for you as well, I'm sure. Um, responsibility to protect. And even though, yes, that's what you get into this line of work for is to serve and protect, um, there's a lot of responsibility and a lot that gets shouldered um, by that responsibility. And sometimes uh, for some people, it can get to be a lot. Um, one of the things when we talk about stress is these things that, we're, that I'm mentioning bring it to a conscious level. Uh, because as I mentioned, you know, sometimes you'll just kind of skate over those being a factor and not really even give uh, yourself permission to even kind of um, like relate to these things. Emotional control is another one. And this is a, this is a huge deal. Um, you go, I mean, you know, it's so, so glad that all of you can take emotional control. You have to, right? It could mean your life or the lives of uh, the public that you're serving. But the thing that's difficult with that, one of the things is that it's not like a light switch that you can flip on and off. And so uh, when I work with families, a lot of times I'll see where, or even do couples counseling, um, a lot of times this will be an issue where the spouse or significant other will have some um, complaints or concerns about their uh, husband or wife not being fully present emotionally for them or in the family. Um, and some of it is because of the emotional control factor. Uh, inconclusive nature of police work. Some personalities have a harder time with this than others, right? I mean, some people, uh, and you know, you probably know, I'm sure that a lot of type A personalities are drawn to the field of law enforcement. Um, and so not being able to see things to fruition, sometimes with cases being open, sometimes for years, right? Um, or different things like that, having things just drag out in court, um, things like that get on some personality uh, types more than others. And this is something that can cause um, a person a lot of stress. Quick alternating pace. So just having to go from being, standing still to, you know, fast forward in a moment's notice. I know that I work with people, when I work with people, I'm preparing for retirement, um, this is a big deal, being used to having that whole um, adrenaline factor and going 100 miles an hour, you know, in your career. And then, um, believe it or not, like people sometimes will even start having issue with it like a year before retirement. I get people that come in and that are really struggling and, and uh, having acute stress issues with that. Responsibility of owning and using a firearm, so feeling unsafe. Um, you know, it's not, it, I have talked to people who have a hard time feeling safe without a firearm. It is something that's by your hip 
all the time and it truly saves your life. And so um, I think that sometimes can become a factor. The other thing too is having a firearm in the house. And yes, you have gun safes and stuff, but we've all heard about those stories where, you know, there can be an oversight um, and where unfortunately like a, a kid can get killed. And I'm sure we've all heard stories like that. Interpersonal relationships. I think that uh, one of the things I hear, and, and I'm, I talk about the families because I have the unique um, opportunity to be able to see a lot of wives and husbands and significant others who give the flip side of, you know, what it's like to be involved in a relationship with somebody who's a police officer or involved in law enforcement. And, um, and so sometimes, again, the way that you navigate through being on call and then uh, taking some of those patterns home um, sometimes can cause stress in itself, stress on those relationships, even at the point sometimes of fracturing the relationships. And shift work, um, shift work, one of the things, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is one of the things shift work does is it messes with your biological clock. So with your uh, circadian rhythm and, and things like that, where your body is used to functioning in a certain way, and when you start uh, introducing things like the shifts, and, and it seems like you guys just had another shift change, didn't you? So, I mean, you know, it can happen fairly often, not even that it has to happen like a year, you know, into things or a year later. And that will really mess with how you feel. Like I said, we're going to talk about that more later, but how you feel physically. When we talk about stress of any kind, you have to remember that stress is going to impact you mentally, physically, and emotionally. Um, and that's one of the things that makes it kind of um, challenging to, to talk about and understand. Uh, home life. Uh, again, I wish that, you know, we could leave our work life when we go home and leave our home life when we come to work. But that just isn't the case uh, for anybody. And then I think because your jobs work, require so much of, I mean, pretty much your yourself revolves a good part of the time around your work. It has to, there is, there is no other way. Um, then a lot of times it tends to leak into the household and love for the job that can be a catch-22 because if you're uh, again that type a personality or just you know some people um, that want to climb the, the career ladder and really force that upon themselves to do that quickly um, that's where love for the job that's why, why I put it under occupational stress because sometimes that can be uh, just an added stress factor that can uh, tend to be really difficult Job demands like court, uh, you know, just not even having a day off necessarily when you have a day off is something that uh, that usually, typically, and a lot of people I talk to causes a lot of stress um, because there's that added responsibility. And the last one, negative public attention is huge. I mean, I try all the time to um, set the public straight in the realms where, you know, I'm out networking and, and doing business with all kinds of companies. And uh, I really try to advocate for you guys and, and tell people that not to believe the media and different things that they hear that there really is, um, uh, you know, a different picture and stuff. But that, I know some of the officers I've talked about, that is very, very stressful just to be at the focus it's different when you're around people who are negative um, and it's it from and even more stressful when that negative attention is 
being focused or geared toward you. So that's difficult. May I? Sure. So just a couple things. One, there's also obviously, as everybody knows, trauma, you know, being exposed to trauma, seeing trauma in addition to the threats to yourself. And also a sort of uh, a loss of meaning in your job can be very, very uh, difficult. Um, and sometimes there's a lot of stress with administration, both being an administrator, but more importantly, if you're a, an officer dealing with the administration and the, that sort of black box feeling of people not looking out for you, not trying to help you, and that can be very stressful. So, and then, and we, we, the, yeah, and and next month, um, when I talk about substances, and that is something I'm going to go into more detail on, is okay. about trauma and the difference between, a lot of times people think that stress is synonymous with trauma or PTSD, and, and they're very different, and so, you know, I'm glad you made that point. Um, with regard to personal stress, there's time away from the spouse and significant other and children, and you know, I always look at it like when you're coming off shift um, or you're kind of reuniting with your family, a lot of times the mind is going in 10 other directions. And so it's hard. I look at it kind of like trying to jump on a merry-go-round that's in motion already. It's hard for the family because they're trying to accept you back into the house. And I realize, you know, you're gone for eight or 12 hours, you know, sometimes longer, right? Um, you do get to go home, but it still is quite a bit to navigate and integrate back into what's going on at home. Um, then there are time constraints. So just, you know, any, any time constraints in your work that you have to do, all the reports you have to write or things that you have to get done, um, that adds a whole different element and type of stress uh, because those reports are being looked at and sometimes meticulously so, especially with you know, all the legal situations and being under the microscope for those people here in Albuquerque under, you know, with the DOJ involved and everything. Um, that's a real big factor. Um, and I put emotional control again, because that is just to remind you about it leaking back into the home life in terms of not being present, present completely for your family. Um, and even for yourself, and, and in terms of trauma, you know, one of the big factors in trauma is to experience dissociation. So a lot of times people feel numb. And unless somebody ever talks to you about that, it's easy to just bypass because that's a weird sensation to feel numb. Um, and we'll talk more in detail. There's even like depersonalization. So where you actually can feel like you're sitting on the periphery of things and just kind of watching them go on, but you don't really feel like you're part of it. And I know that sounds really strange, but when I mention that to people, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I totally can relate to that. Um, it's just like any of this other stuff, unless you get it mentioned, sometimes it's easy to just overlook it. And money and finances. When a person is under stress, first of all, there's different levels of stress, right? There's some people who are at this far extreme level of stress on the continuum, and they might be the people that are drinking and uh, just out of control with their anger. And then there's a lesser degree, right, on this other end of the continuum. Well, finances is something that I always am listening for with people because people do things with money. Like there's money is an area that a lot of symptoms are present. And so if somebody's very out of control with their money, you know, if you see somebody who's working a lot of overtime, for example, um, sometimes that can be a signal that that person is in distress. Um, not always, right? But, you know, sometimes that is the case. 
um, living beyond their means and it might be a way that they are coping with their stress to avoid feeling it. Um, then there's the illness of, of self or others, the illness and health that drives up the whole personal stress factor, um, especially if you can't be home as often as you want or can't be as present. And if you have kids or significant other or spouse that are, are not as healthy as, you know, what was as healthy as they can be, that can be challenging. Um, I did mention integrating into the household. That is, that's a big thing. Um, I think that's one that a lot of times people overlook. And then as I get the, I, get, I talk to people about that, um, officers tend to realize like how much they really do miss out on. Right. And I mean, that's like a no brainer. Like people know that, but a lot of these things, it's one thing to know these things and one thing to really talk about them and acknowledge them. Those are two very different things. Um, to know them and to acknowledge them. I would imagine that when someone's been put on light duty, that that, that injury, would, that it would be like a huge personal stress. Like if, some, if you've been injured and you can't, you can't do your work, mm-hmm. and then that affects you even more because you're used to working overtime, you're used to being away, and all of a sudden you're at the house all the time, you're not working overtime. I think that would throw a whole different dynamic into it. That is, that is very challenging. I've been like that, and it was just, you don't feel like you're not like a whole human being, because as a cop, especially when you have light duty, you can't carry a gun, they take your car away. I yes. would imagine that that would put... Well, and that's very shameful, like yeah. what you just talked about, so that drives up the stress for sure. Right. Um, no, no, thank you. And that kind of leads into what you're saying. You're always on. And so, yeah, when light duty kind of, you know, slows things down dramatically, like that is really hard. Um, low frustration tolerance level. So, you know, what that means is that because, again, and, you know, a lot of this is driven by your work. It's demanded of you when you're in your work capacity as to, you know, you have to constantly assess what to be tolerant of and what not to and how to keep protection and control and keep people safe and the whole situation safe, right? Secure safety for everybody. Then it's really difficult to then navigate and go home and make that transition into being more tolerant of things. Um, and then not feeling understood. And I know that uh, that's kind of a catch-22 because that's why a lot of cops will hang out with other cops is because, you you know, they could, they feel like, you guys understand each other but that can also be a catch-22 because um you know then you forget kind of what really the rest of life is about you know and people that aren't in that circle um this is a really good um image to take with you today and jen uh jen you can request any copies of anything we go through today but the reason why i like it is because it reminds us that stress impacts our body our mind our emotions and our behavior. And so there are, um, if you want to know symptoms of where you're at with stress, uh, you know, you get the idea, well, do you have any body aches? Do you have frequent headaches? And sometimes people will just say, yeah, you know, gosh, my stomach's always hurting, but they'll just be popping the tums, you know, or just, and just kind of get used to doing that. And that's not really good because your body then is indicating to you something about your stress level. Your body, if your body's in stress, uh, then it's good to look at the other aspects of who you are and figure out if you're experiencing mental stress, emotional stress. 
uh, behavior a lot of times is going to be the thing that people see first, right? And then we like kind of track it backward. So they might notice, oh, I'm just not that hungry. I'm not as hungry as I used to be. You know, I don't know why. And that might be the very first thing they notice or the insomnia, you know, they're not able to sleep or they're restless. And it might have to start with uh, recognizing that and then moving backward in terms of pinpointing why you're stressed or what's going on. Now, symptoms of distress, even the word uh, takes that to a little bit more of a heightened level, right? It's not just stress. It's kind of the next level up in terms of um, on this continuum that I was talking about where somebody might be more toward this, this end. And fatigue, believe it or not, it can be um, a symptom of distress. I have a lot of people talk about, but it's not something that typically people will just offer information about. I think a lot of times they just kind of get used to being like that, and so they don't really mention it. But I'll always ask people, how's your energy level? And you'd be amazed at the answers that you get. So that's something for you to tune in about yourself is if you experience fatigue. Um, insomnia or restlessness, uh, and I think that's pretty common, right, in your uh, line of work is who gets a good night's rest all the time, right? Um, and restlessness is, can be like fidgetiness. Um, so kind of nervousness, um, which I think a lot of times because of your guy's schedule and the, the way that you are in action, a lot of times can be hard to pinpoint because uh, it's not like you're just standing idle, you know, depending on the nature of your job and where you're assigned and all of that. Um, lowered or heightened sex drive. And I know that you might think, well, heightened sex drive, what's wrong with that, right? Uh, <laughs> and you're telling me to complain about that. Why, Mary Blanca? But trust me, it can be, you know, it can be something that's indicating, especially if it's a change, it can be something that you should pay attention to because it could be signaling that there's other things wrong that you need to address. Um, drinking too much, you know, can be um, a red flag. And especially, again, all of these, especially if it's a change in behavior. Anger, agitation, or frustration frequently. Anger is one that I think a lot of times gets overlooked. Um, truly, when a person exhibits a lot of anger, it's not typically because they're angry. So a lot of times it's because they're experiencing depression or they're experiencing trauma or they're experiencing other things and it's just showing up in anger and agitation and impatience frustration, things like that. So it definitely is something to pay attention to. And it's the one thing you'll hear other people tell you, God, you're always pissed off, you know, what's going on? It's the one thing that'll stand out that a lot of times people will call, call your attention to. Um, feeling nervous, anxious, or keyed up. Dwelling or obsessing is huge. And it's hard because you have to be able to obsess, like, and analyze. I'll use the word analyze, right? You, you're constantly in this analytical mode. Um, and so it's almost like some of the things that your job demands of you um, work against you in other ways. So the key is to be selective, to learn about these things and learn uh, how, to, how to shut them off and when to turn them on, when they serve you well and when they work against you. Uh, compulsive behavior, I could say the same thing about that. You know, it's, um, I don't know. I was going to say, I don't know really any officer that's lazy, but I know a lot of people would say, that's not true. You should meet so-and-so. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, so, you know, a lot of times there's compulsivity, you know, working the overtimes. And sometimes that's driven financially because, you know, the spouse may stay home with the kids. And so, you know, you're running off of one income, but 
Um, if you're having issues with any of these and it is stress related, it's going to be several of them. It's not going to be one of these. Okay. So, um, so you don't have to worry if, if you fit into, into one of these categories, you know, you're going to be experiencing several if it's a problem. Um, feeling distant or disconnected, that goes back to the whole emotional control and shutting off and distancing and that kind of thing. Um, inability to enjoy typical things you used to, and that could be a sign of depression. So, uh, and just kind of being removed and distant from other things and people in your life. And I have seen that happen, you know, where people are like, I don't know what is wrong. I used to really enjoy working out and I, I just don't, I have to drag my butt to the gym, you know. Um, so that could be a signal of problems. Wanting to be alone and isolate. Um, I just talked to somebody this morning about that, you know, about that very that very factor about uh, her knowing, you know, that's kind of one of her signs that she knows uh, just tells her when she starts to want to be alone and not really be around people, you know, that um, that she knows she's not doing so well. And change in appetite. Um, you know, appetite, food is something we always have to do, right? Like, you know, it's a normal part of life. So it's kind of a good way to look at any change in behavior in that, um, you know, could signal something. Any questions, comments? Any, anybody, questions or comments from the room or from the network? Okay, so defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms are something we all use. Um, it's a way when we don't want to be uncomfortable, um, it's our subconscious way and it's involuntary. So, you know, whether you're dealing with yourself or, or the public, it's not, and you spot these things in, in somebody you encounter on a call, it's not something they have control over. These ways, these patterns are involuntary. Um, I think these are actually very interesting. And, you know, we learn about these in college and whatnot. Um, they're, they're, the defense mechanisms are used to protect yourself. So they're a healthy way at first and in certain situations to protect yourself and keep yourself safe, sort of your core self um, and your subconscious. But they can become very um, damaging to you and those around you. So what she and I will go over is how to identify these patterns of behavior that you may be doing without realizing it and to try to give yourself a word for it and um, learn how to deal with it in yourself and in other people. So the first one I have there is identification with the aggressor. And, and that's one I'm sure you guys see common. I know I do. Um, where there's a focus on negative or fear trait, conquering the fear, becoming more like the individual that's feared to begin with. So, you know, you'll see these families, right, uh, where it's like aggression just seems to be the thing or using drugs or, um, you know, violence, violent tendencies. And it's and I get the opportunity to take this apart, right, with people because I'm a counselor. So that's my job is I take these patterns apart and I'm able to get to the bottom of it. Um, but you'll see these things and you do all the time. Um, so with this, with this one, the classic identification with the aggressor is the Stockholm. So I'm in, I'm in Auschwitz or wherever I am and I'm being ordered and tortured all day. And then I start to identify with the aggressor and actually act like a SS soldier or a Nazi. And this was, this actually happened. People would goose step around the, 
the concentration camps. So that's the extreme version of it. But if you're, say, a child and you're being, as you pointed out, abused or hit, you, you start to say, a part of you starts to identify with that and become that other person. Um, and it's a way to keep yourself safe. Like this person who's abusing me can't be all bad, so I'll kind of be like them. Like Patty Hearst. Like Patty For those Hurst. of you that know about Patty Hearst. Then there's repression, and that's keeping disturbing thoughts from the conscious mind. And the interesting thing is it can look like the person is lying. Um, so, you know, you can, you can think that the person's lying. I know when I work with couples, um, sometimes the spouse, one of them will say, you're just lying. Like, there's no way that you don't remember that. When really it's, a, it's an issue with repression, especially when you talk about trauma. Okay, there is um, the line of work that you guys are in does affect the memory system in the brain. A lot of times, you know, trauma does. And so uh, I know when I've worked with couples, it's been helpful for spouses and significant others to learn that, no, there really is such a thing as repression and there really is such a thing as, you know, um, dissociation and all of those things. So Yeah, repression is clearly exists. So that's you block it out of your conscious mind altogether. So there's something that you that's very bad or something that you remember, you just it's too overwhelming, so you just don't remember it. And that happens in trauma all the time. You just don't remember what happened. Suppression, which is not up there, is actively trying not to remember or not to talk about it. Yeah. Which we all do too. Sure. And then projection, this is a really interesting one. Where it involves individuals attributing their own thoughts, feelings, and motives onto another person. So, you know, you might have somebody uh, telling their wife or husband, you're pissed off at me. I know that you are, when really there's no evidence of that. Uh, a lot of times it's because that person is the one that's angry and Pro just not owning it. Projection's a good one because it's probably the most common that you'll see in a day-to-day -day basis. So let's say your let's say your boss is upset with you and say, you know, you're not putting in enough an effort. They might actually be talking about themselves. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and so they project that negative thing that they won't they won't admit to themselves, like, hey, you know, maybe I should be doing better, maybe I should be working harder. And everybody else sees it except for them, and they literally don't see it. And then instead of accepting it, accepting that I'm not doing my best, they project it onto their workers. You guys aren't doing your best, it's your fault. So, and you can do that with almost any negative thing that you feel about yourself. You just project it onto somebody else. And it happens so often in daily life. It's kind of terrifying. It does. One of the things that comes to my mind, the situations I've seen in working with couples is um, if you don't feel successful or useful or effective at your job and you don't deal with those feelings and who hasn't been there, right? We all have been. Um, and you go home and you take that home, then, you know, you will have the tendency could have, Okay, the tendency to project that onto your spouse or your family, leaving your spouse or your family feel like they're letting you down, they're disappointing you, they're not doing enough for you, they're not good enough, things like that. So um, like Neil said, projection comes up all too often. And it often looks like hypocritical behavior, I think. Uh, displacement, very, uh, another very common one, redirection of an impulse or emotion or issues so instead of dealing with it's kind of like passive aggressive tendencies right or instead of dealing with the person and saying look I'm really upset with you then taking it out on somebody else and I've had a lot of family members say I don't understand you know he's a great he's a great uh, friend he's a good police officer he's outstanding in the in socially but 
he's not a good husband or he treats us differently. That's just really, really, really common, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, I think that, you know, our loved ones tend to see the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right, of us all. The classic displacement is kick the dog. Yes. You know, I, had a, I had a hard time at work going to kick the dog. You know, I'm, I'm because of something the dog did. That's why. I didn't really do it because I'm angry. I did it because the dog did something wrong, and so I kicked it. That's what makes it a defense mechanism. If I just know that I'm angry and kick the dog because I'm angry, it's not quite, it's not really uh, uh, right. a defense mechanism. It's a sort of subconscious. So a dog peed on the, the floor, so now I beat the crap out of the dog. Right. Denial, which is a common, common one, when a situation is too much for a person to handle, so they keep it to themselves and they keep themselves from experiencing it. And that is a common one. I think that, um, you know, how many times, I'm sure a lot of you, if not all of you, can relate to, no, I don't need to get help. I don't need to talk to anybody. We talk to each other. Um, And that's great. But sometimes, right, in extreme cases, it is necessary to talk to somebody. And that's okay. And so there can be denial about um, just being able to handle something. Um, Talking to somebody doesn't mean you can't handle it. Um, But sometimes people don't want to feel the feelings. Uh, I saw somebody in my office this morning, a firefighter who was like, you know, I don't want to feel all this crap, you know, but he realizes uh, the necessity to do that. And that's been uh, a lot of work that he's done to get to that point. And denial, I'm sure people have seen in your line of work, you tell somebody maybe something, some terrible news, and they just act like they didn't hear you. Your, your dad's dead, I'm sorry to tell you the bad news. And like, okay, yeah, that's great. When is he coming home? Mm-hmm. No, that's just, that's like the most blatant type of denial. And it can last a long time. Yes. And it can be of various degrees. And yes. it, the, the key there is that the person really doesn't know. They're not lying. They're not making up. It's just not in their conscious world. And then there's regression. So that's when an individual moves back in time psychologically when troubled or frightened. So you might respond to a call uh, where you see an adult, right, chronologically aged adult who's acting like a child uh, because of the severity of whatever is going on at the time. And that's regression. Again, not something they have control over in the moment, not something they can just snap out of and, and be okay. Regression is a good one to remember for personality disorders because um, I, I like often describe, it's not totally accurate, but uh, people with personality disorders is if they're in middle school. So they're very emotional and they're very up and down. They're very black and white. Um, and then they can regress. They can literally go back to grade school and, and start having magical thinking and, and just, you, they spill their ice cream and they just start crying and crying and crying. And that people regress when they're under stress. That's not an unusual thing. It happens to everybody. So you're, let's say you're a fully functioning, healthy adult and you're put under a lot of stress. You may wake up and start acting like a middle schooler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, rationalization uh, is cognitive distortion of the facts to make an event or the truth less threatening. And you guys encounter people like this all the time right uh who just rationalize why they ran that stop sign or rationalize why they killed somebody like you know we're talking these things can be very very extreme in some people and they truly believe that they truly truly believe that and going back to the purpose of the defense mechanism is so that they don't have to deal with the emotions that come with the truth now techniques um 
because all of these defense mechanisms start internally, they start mentally. Uh, but just even, not even just about the defense mechanisms, but just techniques in general are to pay attention to whatever triggers you. We all have triggers that are things that push our buttons. Um, and at any given time, they don't even have to necessarily be consistent. So you will do yourself a huge favor if you know what your triggers are. It could be a particular kind of person. It could be a season. It could be a certain kind of call. It could be 10 million things. Um, that will really help your stress level if you know what your triggers are and that way you know what to look out for and how to take care of yourself through the situation. Um, there's internal and external cues. So um, just really being in touch with what's going on with yourself mentally and physically and also your surroundings as well. Identify maladaptive thought patterns. So implement thought stopping. There's a cognitive behavioral therapy is a kind of therapy that is known to all us counselors. Um, and that's basically what that is, but it, it can be very, very helpful. It's not something that works all the time, but it can be very helpful. So you would take a maladaptive thought pattern that you're having, maybe um, a thought pattern of, geez, I just don't enjoy my job anymore. Like, you know, I suck at it. It sucks. I hate the world. You know, those would be maladaptive thought patterns. And you would want to try to implement thought stopping because literally sometimes that will help if you just tell yourself, you know, quit thinking like that. What is your problem? Um, if it doesn't, you can actually, you can try thought substitution. Um, so that would be substituting positive or at least neutral thoughts. And uh, because remember, thoughts create reality for a person. We live so much of life based on what we perceive. And even communicatively, a lot of times people realize that there are just a whole lot of perceptions going on and not really, um, you know, reality a lot of times. And then uh, taking space mentally or physically. And that goes back to even the whole dwelling thing. I tell people, take space, but if you continue to think about the thing you're trying to get away from, you're not really taking space because it's living in your mind and you're probably not going to be any calmer when you leave that situation even an hour later if you stay thinking about it. So that's the big, big key to that. And it isn't easy for people to take space. That is probably one of the hardest things uh, for people to do that I work with them on is taking space. Uh, identify what can be dealt with and when. Um, so that there's some reality, you know, there's some people that are very urgent about wanting things done right then and there, and they don't want to wait, you know, and um, when realistically, that is uh, probably going to be counterproductive. And create distraction. I tell people distraction is your friend. Again, it gets your mind off of things. Uh, when you, whenever you hear me talk about mindfulness and meditation, that's one of the the purposes of that is that it helps you create a distraction um, so that your mind's not busy. Because how many people, like I hear so many people talk about how hard it is to shut your mind off. And that is a sign of stress. If you can't, and I think we all can relate to that. I know so many people, right? Um, that's a sign of stress. Now, not necessarily distress, but it is a sign of stress. And can go back to so we'll probably have to wrap up on this slide so we can talk about it a little bit. Um, so we're, we're going to wrap up in about uh, three to five minutes. So we do want um, a chance for uh, questions. And then I wanted to add my two cents to this. But are there any questions 
Yeah, I had one. Um, Could you identify yourself? Sir? Sure. Detective Melendres <laughs> with the Albuquerque PDCIU. <laughs> so one of the most common defense mechanisms that I've seen in law enforcement, and I've always thought of it as healthy, but maybe you guys have a different perspective on it, is the gallows humor. Okay. You know, making really inappropriate jokes at the scene of some horrendous thing that we've sure. seen. And for me, it's always been, you know, that's a healthy way to, you know, deal with what we're having to see and what we're going through. But it's something that's pretty specific to military and law enforcement. Right. So I was wondering if you guys had thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I have plenty of thoughts about that. Um, does anybody from the, the network have anything they want to add to that or any thoughts about gallows humor, sort of dark humor to keep yourself above water? I just think it's a coping mechanism for the most part. I mean, I'm Detective Lawrence Vega with APD, and I, I've just seen it on, like he's saying, these horrendous scenes. Um, but I think it's because if you don't use that coping mechanism, you may, it's too much for your body and your mind to handle at that point. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't joke about it, I think it, for certain people, it would just overtake them. They wouldn't know how to. They wouldn't be able to get out of that. And then it gives them time to, so that they can, they can process it in their own time. If not, you'd have to process it pretty quick. Right. Yeah, I, 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 this is Niels Rosenbaum again. I agree a hundred percent with both what you guys are saying. First off, when these were formulated, these defense mechanisms by I think Anna Freud, there were positive and negative ones, and so. Uh, Humor was considered a positive one. Uh, and so, yes, and you described defense mechanisms perfectly. It's too much to handle. It's, you, it'll overwhelm me, my body and mind. So you build this defense mechanism, and some of them are more healthy than others. And, and humor is one of the more healthy ones. That being said, if humor, I've seen some good modern studies about humor, and that it, it can be a good defense mechanism, but if it starts to become all the time, and it starts to become more cynical, especially if it becomes, uh, the humor comes sort of based against certain people, it can lead to a uh, bad burnout. But I, I'm a big believer in, in humor and that's I th in the I way think, you're describing. I think it's really great, again, because of the family work that I do, um, if, if you can shut it off when you get home. Because, <laughs> you know, then I've seen where spouses and significant others are like, you're always so pessimistic, you're always so negative, what is up with that? And so they don't understand, they don't know, you know, they, unless you explain to them. But yeah, I do think, I agree, I think it can be very healthy in the moment. And you have to taper it with, temper it, excuse me, with letting some of it through. If it all becomes humor, it all becomes defense mechanisms, you can become sort of callous to it. Um, I don't think that's happening to anybody here, but it could, or you have that one defense mechanism and that's all you have. And finally something penetrates that one defense mechanism and then you fall apart and the floodgates open. So you want to let a, a little bit through and process it as you go along. Like Does that balance. make sense? Yeah. yeah. So back to this one slide, the other things I wanted to add, unless, is there, I'll give a pause for if there's anybody else who has a question about the entire lecture or a comment. So looking at these, um, and you could jump in or, or send a message at any time too. Uh, the, the, the ones that are the most, the key ideas here for me are one, paying attention. So that's the opposite of having a defense mechanism. 
if you if you know what you're doing, it's not it's no longer a defense mechanism. It's a conscious choice. So I'm I'm choosing to kick the dog. I'm choosing to project project these bad things onto those people. That's much much different than I'm doing it without realizing it. Um, so until you can pay attention and notice your own behaviors and what are the triggers that set you off, you can't make any intervention. So if, if there is something that everybody knows sets you off, like, I don't know, going to see children in the field sets you off and makes you irritable all day, and you're the only one who doesn't see it, you've got to pay attention and realize and have some insight. And that's easier said than done. And then with number three here, the, the thinking. Thinking is such a huge part of our lives. That constant um, monologue that we have with us all the time that we identify as who we are. Like, those thoughts are me. I'm having those thoughts. That's just how we live our life. But really, cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been the most well-studied by far therapy in the world over the last probably 50, 60 years. There, there's not even a second close one. Um, and it works. And the whole basis of it is to, when you're having these thoughts, to not believe all of them. So if you, God, I'm such a terrible worker, I, I don't do this, I don't do that, just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And so what cognitive therapists do is they work with you to not believe all your thoughts, essentially. And then mindfulness goes one step further, says you aren't your thoughts. Those are just part of your physiology, just like you aren't your foot or you aren't your heartbeat. Your heart is going to beat no matter what, whether you notice it and say every moment of the day that heartbeat is me and I am that heartbeat like you do with your thoughts. Um, it's going to keep going. And so that's what mindfulness is, is helps sort of remove you from your thoughts a little bit. But cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness work very well together. It's don't believe everything you think. You know, don't get caught into it. And another example with that is let's say, because you had a slide about uh, obsession. Mm-hmm. And sort of weird thoughts. Everybody, every human being has weird thoughts. So the, the example yes. I give is you're walking along the crest. <laughs> you, you're, walking along, you're walking along a cliff, let's say at the Sandia the Mountains, and you look over the mountains. It's not uncommon to think, huh, I wonder what it would be like to jump off. Right. Right? Doesn't mean you're suicidal. Doesn't mean you have any problems. It's just a thought that popped into your mind. Most people are able to dismiss that thought out of hand. Oh, whatever. Yeah, that would be fun, but I can't. I die. And that's it. <laughs> but other people might think, well, why did I think that? Oh, my gosh, am I suicidal? Maybe I am suicidal. Right. Oh, my God. And then you start to ruminate it. It's how much you invest in that thought and ruminate on that thought. And that's when it becomes a problem. And that's why you have to pay attention and argue with your thoughts and not believe them all. Just like you don't believe every odd thought that comes in your mind. Don't believe these ones that you think are fundamentally true either. Um, well, in cognitive behavioral therapy, it's really helpful because it, it helps you look at how to change those thoughts. Yes. Which is very um, powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. No, I'm a big believer in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just a boring therapy to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it works. It works great. And most therapists use it as sort of one of their fundamental parts of their therapy. But to do just cognitive behavioral therapy, it's like there's a workbook and you go through it and you do certain things. and that's why it's been studied so well. Um, that's it for the lecture. Awesome.